Put yourselves in the shoes of someone who wanted to be an artist, then started a successful career in restaurant management. What's your next step? It probably wouldn't be law school, would it? Our guest today made the jump from the food industry into real estate law and gives most of the credit for her success to finding the right people to surround herself with. If you need some inspiration to make the leap to a better career or to become a world-class networker, this conversation will be perfect for you. Welcome to Unusually Successful, where you will meet a series of people who have achieved extraordinary results in life and business. Join your host, Sean Dipple, as he looks to learn what made these people unusually successful. We're here with Meredith Noon of Noon and Hammett. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, Noonan Hammond is based in Greenville, South Carolina, and you also have an office in Spartanburg, South Carolina. That is correct. So, tell me about your business. We are a very small real estate law firm, just closings, no litigation. I always make the joke if someone hires us to represent them for a traffic ticket, or at least me, they're probably going to go to the chair. So, we'll, we'll stick with what we know. <laughs> Got to do what you're good at, right? Yes, and what we like. Yeah. Absolutely. So you started the law firm back in 2000? 1998. It was the Noon Law Firm when I was first sworn into the South Carolina Bar. And then in 2000, it became Noon and Hammett with Steve Hammett joining me. And then we became law partners. So it's been a good amount of time, about 20 years together. Wow. When did you open Spartanburg? We opened Spartanburg right in the middle of the meltdown, uh, 2008. Steve is born and raised in Spartanburg, and he had been commuting all the way from Spartanburg to Greenville the entire time. And it just seemed like a great idea at the time when we had yeah. no business to open another office. But it's, it's worked out really well. Great timing. Yes. Yeah. Well, hey, as long as it worked, that's good. So tell me about the, the, the practice in general. What's your claim to fame? How many employees do you have? I know in your line of work, it's all about the closings. Yep. Um, we have two wonderful gals in Spartanburg and four wonderful people in Greenville, including make that five, including my mom who works part-time with us. Oh, really? And, out. Yeah. and um, we're very lucky and we, we just do the closings. We may be a little different than some of the larger firms in that we schedule about an hour and a half for a purchase and we leave an hour set aside for a refinance. It's not that it takes that long, but we want to leave that time there in case people have questions, in case something comes up last minute, in case someone's running late. We don't want them to feel rushed. We want to be able to really spend the time and take the time with a client. Right. So tell me what is important about finding a good closing attorney. You want to find a law firm that is detail oriented. And one of the biggest things that we do as a closing firm is we do the title examination and review of all the title work to make sure everything is good, especially if they're purchasing. Obviously, if they're refinancing, they already know what they've got. And my law partner is absolutely hands down one of the best attorneys in the state of South Carolina for proofing title work. And so he's very, very thorough. Sometimes, you know, we catch things probably people wish we didn't catch, but we try to do our very, very best to be very meticulous about that. And then my favorite part is the interaction with the clients. I really enjoy sitting across the table, getting to know them, taking the time, 
most of our clients become friends of the firm and we'll see them again later on and maybe their friends and family as well. So a lot of word of mouth there. Yeah, that's great. I think you forgot to mention one really important employee. <laughs> the four-legged furry one. Yes, yes. My golden retriever, um, Rio, comes to work with me every day. Rio. Rio. You know, I've always wanted to have a job that you could bring your dog to. It's wonderful. He gives me a very sad look if I don't load him in the morning into the car. Like, what is he going to do all day? Oh, really? Yeah. You know, he's going to be stuck lying down at home as opposed to lying down at the office. Yeah. But he likes to greet people. And sometimes it, they want him to come out into the lobby or into the closing room. Just he's sort of a distressor yeah, for people who are um, a little anxious or just need that dog therapy. So he's a sweetheart. Golden Retrievers, they're just love sponges. Yeah. Yeah. Golden Retrievers are great dogs. You know, having bought and sold homes throughout the year myself, it's very stressful. I mean, it's, you know, I'm in office technology. I'm not into T's and C's of contracts. In fact, my personality by nature is not detail oriented. And so it can be a terrifying experience. And it's one of the biggest purchases of your life generally is your house, biggest investments of people's lives. So it's very important. And do you do commercial real estate as well? We don't do much commercial anymore. Um, Right now, gratefully, residential is very big here in Greenville with the low rates. People are refinancing. People are buying, buying, buying and building, building. So our area is sort of this protected little pocket. So generally, I don't do much commercial at this point. Neither Steve or I do. We may bring that back again. We certainly have done. We've done some very big commercial transactions in the past. They're just very time consuming and we're a very small firm. So we don't really have the time to give to those those details at this yeah. point. It's kind of a different animal. Different animal. Yeah. yeah. And did you mention how many closings a month you do between the two offices? Um, I'm trying to think right now. It's funny that you think I would have thought of that before I came in here today. We're probably closing about 25 a week between both offices, sometimes more. Um, I think one week in the Greenville office alone, we had 32 or 33. And that was, you know, wild and wide open. If you think about that, that's basically 32 hours that I'm actually talking to folks aside from the time that needs to be spent working on each file and getting it ready for closing. Um, my folks spend a lot of time on the files from start to finish. And I usually spend about 45 minutes on a purchase before I'm actually in the closing room with them and sometimes more. Yeah. And about 30 to 40 minutes, sometimes on a refinance before I'm actually in the closing room with them. So that was a wild week. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. So tell me about what would be a good example of a bad experience with a closing attorney as, as a consumer. I want to know what do I, what do I look for? What are you representing the seller, the buyer? Are you representing both? Um, In South Carolina, I would have to say that we have some representation of everybody at the closing. Mm -hmm. Generally, the purchaser is the one who would have chosen us. In the state of South Carolina, they do have the right always to choose their closing attorney. Sometimes the sellers come separately represented. I know in the low part of the state, that's pretty common. Just like up in the northeastern states, you have an attorney for the buyer, an attorney for the seller, sometimes an attorney for the lender. In the upstate, it's still pretty common that there's one settlement agent who does the closing for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we represent the purchaser um, and their lender to make sure the documents are executed properly and explained to them. And to some degree, the sellers as well, because we're preparing a deed on their behalf. We're handling their mortgage payoff. And we do disclose that to everybody and just kind of let them know if if they get in a fight, you know, I'm I'm basically going to lock them in the closing room and it'll be like Thunderdome, last person standing wins. We're lovers, not fighters. We don't do any litigation anyway. So we could not get involved 
in representing a party against another party. Right. Obviously, there are plenty of situations that arise where we try to help them mediate a situation or help, you know, smooth over or get the, you know, kind of win-win for everybody. But that's a little bit different than actually representing a party against another party. So in 2000, it all started. You formed this business with your partner. So the last 21 years, coming up on 21 years. Mm-hmm. So is this all you've done? Take, take me back to where this all began. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I'm not a true Southerner. Um, actually, I see a lot of not true Southerners at the closings. It's very rare say. that I meet somebody who's actually born and raised here. Right. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, in Villanova, Conshohocken area. And I was an artsy kid. I kind of thought I would probably end up going to art school and maybe be an art teacher in elementary schools. And then when it came time to look at colleges, I was looking at the art schools. And we had vacation down here when I was about 13 years old. So suddenly my focus was turned south, whereas all my other friends were looking at northern schools. And my father, who was in advertising and very artsy all his life, asked me if he thought I could, if I really had what it took to be an artist and if I had a passion for it and that's what I wanted to do, you know, obviously they would fully support me in that. He said, or do you just want to involve creativity in everything that you do? Do you, do you really think you have what it takes to make art your life? And I thought, mm, probably not. So I had visited a friend of mine who was at Duke University a couple years older. And when I toured the university, that was the only place I wanted to go. So I threw everything I had at it. I threw nothing at all the other applications I turned in. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that my application for University of Pennsylvania is still hanging on a corkboard in some admissions office with a, can you believe this oh, no. kid had the nerve to turn in this handwritten application with strike throughs and carrots above things. Yeah, it was pretty awful. <laughs> um, my folks don't know about that, or now maybe they do, but I only wanted to go to Duke and I was very lucky that I did get in. Yeah. So had a great experience there. Um, waitress all through high school and college. That was my spending money. Waitress for a restaurant called Spinnaker's Restaurant, which is no more. But at one point, I think there were about 23 of the stores in the Southeast and, and also a restaurant called Mac and Maggie's and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I thought psychology sound interesting. So I majored in psychology. And then when I graduated, I actually went to work in the restaurant business, decided to stay in the South and looked a little further south than North Carolina, called up my cousin Holly, who was graduating from college, and said, hey, you want to go get our feet wet in the real world? We'll go down the Charleston area. So we waitressed at night at a restaurant out between Kiowa and Seabrook, and we played volleyball on the beach during the day. It was a great life. Wow. And, and Sounds then, rough. Yeah, very rough. And we worked in reservations and front desk also at the resort. Then a local restaurateur was opening a fine dining only restaurant on Kiowa. He had a general manager and I became the assistant manager. So that was really fun. And that's also where I learned to like to cook because we had a chef. And during the day, I'd get down in the kitchen with a chef and the sous chef and see what they were doing and learn about cooking and all the different wonderful foods they had there. In college, I had to call my mom up to see how long to cook a hot dog before it was done. So Mm -hmm. this was an improvement. The general manager didn't really work out. And so I got promoted to general manager and my cousin Holly came on as my assistant manager And then we had Hugo and that kind of devastated the island and the restaurant really never came back from that. But I was still very much in the vein of food and beverage and I thought maybe I want to open my own restaurant someday. So I decided to call up the managers and owners at Spinnaker's and see about going through their restaurant training program. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, you really need to know it 
from the ground up if you're going to have your own. And that type of chain restaurant, they start you out in the dish room and work you through every station until you're a manager and you really learn everything. Um, Also had uh, met Joe down in Charleston and we moved up to the Columbia area. I was managing restaurants. We bought a little house. He was in construction. I was working six days one week, five days the next. This is still in the Charleston area? No, I had moved up to Columbia at this point. Oh, so Columbia. we're now in, in Columbia and the yeah. Spinnakers was in Columbiana Center in the mall. And it was a six day, five day work week, but it really wasn't because whenever you had a day off, inevitably there was an inventory. You had to come in and spend several hours or there was a manager's meeting. Sure. Um, but it was, you know, it was what it was. It's the restaurant business. It's a typical restaurant business yes. story that uh, 60, 70 plus hours a week. Nights, holidays, and weekends, you're working when everybody else is off, that kind right, of thing. Right. We did have, so my last night in training as a manager, I was back in the office counting the money and the general manager was out in the bar area and he had some friends join him and I, I, I heard voices out there. I thought just more people had joined him. The next thing I know, they had, he was coming back towards the office and he said, uh, Meredith, turn around. And I turned around and there were, it was him and the general manager of the Chick-fil-A in the mall and there were two fellows there had a gun to their head and mm. he said, we're being robbed. Just give them all the money. And I turned around and started loading whatever cash we had taken in that day into the bag. And the the guys uh, ripped the phone out of the wall, pushed them into the office, you know, said, you stay in here. If you come out here, we'll, you know, we'll shoot you. Yeah. And they were gone. So that was my last night in training, um, which was great. But, Obviously um, was not choreographed to graduate you from the training program. That was a real, <laughs> it was the real, a real deal. robbery. It was the real deal. Wow. We lived, um, they, these guys would hop on the interstates and rob another place or two that same night and then lay low for a while. And then they actually came back about a month later and I was the manager on to the duty. same place, same restaurant. And we're in the mall. You know, I mean, there's an exterior entrance, though. So when they came back the second time, we were still open for business. I had a bartender behind the bar. I was sitting in one of the booths at the bar talking to a waitress who was giving me her notice and telling me what she was going to do. I had um, cooks in the kitchen, a dishwasher in the dish room. And all of a sudden, this fellow comes in right through the front door, puts a gun on the bartender and says, I think you all know what to do. I think you've done this before. And then he yelled, everybody on the floor. And I had to raise my hand up in the air and say, I'm the manager. I have the keys. And was that what your training told you to do? I don't think we'd ever been trained for that. No, I just wanted to make sure he knew I had the keys and hopefully we could get this over with quickly. That was brave. (laughs) It was just, you know, I didn't want to be like that guy's the manager. He's got the keys. (laughs) Uh, Later on, I I wished I wasn't the manager, but they rounded up the guys in the kitchen, except they missed our dishwasher. So then the one guy came back around front. He said, I know some here, someone here has some blankety blank keys. And I raised my hand again. I said, that's me. So he took me in the back and now our dishwasher was cleaning the dishes and the guy uh, told him to hit the floor and the poor kid thought he meant to start mopping the floor and I, I remember saying oh, Kenny, no. Kenny we're being robbed just do what he says um, went back in the office same kind of thing gave him the money then they pushed all of us and there were probably about eight or nine of us they pushed all of us into the little office which is the size of someone's powder room at their house yeah. ripped the phone out of the wall I still remember I had one cook was on the floor rocking himself and the waitress dated the bartender. So he had his arm around her and she was all snuggled up against him. And I was thinking, you know, I would love to have somebody here for me yeah. and not be the one in charge. <laughs> Who's going to hold me? Who's going to hold me? Yeah. So eventually they did catch them. They caught him up around Charlotte. Um, I did a, I helped do a police sketch. So there's some artistic ability came in handy there. But that was that. I left Spinnaker's because Chili's across the street promised. Well, a, wait a minute. Yep. So, so you're in the, you're in the, uh, the office or yeah. the little 
coat closet office, which most restaurants, their offices are very, very small because they want to dedicate the rest of the square footage to more important things. Yeah. They bring in money. Yeah. Yeah. Bring in money. So were you in there thinking, why did I listen to my dad? I should have went to art school. (laughs) No, no, wasn't at all. Just was, was grateful that nobody got hurt. Yeah, really. And it was just such a bizarre circumstance. So when you, when you had that conversation with your father, what did your, what did your mom think about not going to art school? I think the same thing. She, um, her father had started his own business and she worked as president of that company for a while. She knows you can incorporate creativity into business. Yeah. I, I think that was a wise decision. I think I went in the right direction for me as it turned out. Do you have entrepreneurs in your family? Yep. My folks, uh, my dad had started his own advertising agency. I actually worked for him for a little while while I was in high school over the summers. And then he and my mom had a small boutique clothing store just outside of Philadelphia for several years. And wow. then they ultimately, ultimately moved to the Charleston area and had Tinderbox down in Charleston. So for 15 years at least. So yes, entrepreneurial runs in the genes. Wow. And not all the same business either. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's very interesting. There's so many similarities, though, across business, regardless of you know what you're selling. I, I have a meeting once a week with a business owner um, here in town who's a good friend, and we hold each other accountable, and we share challenges that we're having, and sometimes we can really help each other because we're both in different businesses. We can see you know, the person's in the forest, and the, the other person has more of a bird's eye view and can mm-hmm. offer some suggestions or guidance. So Yeah. Okay, so you were, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to make sure we covered the part about your childhood and your, because that's kind of a pivotal point, right? Is that, you know, you think you're going to be an artist and your dad kind of sits you down, who's an entrepreneur. So, you know, he's been there and done that. He's a creative person, but also a business person. Mm -hmm, Very much so. And has this conversation with you. And then all of a sudden you find yourself at one of the most uh, prestigious universities in the world, Duke University. I just barely got in, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you study at Duke? Psychology major, and I had organizational behavior for corporations and businesses as a minor. Mm-hmm. And I took a lot of art classes too. So in your mind, what did you think you were going to become? I thought I'd probably go on to business school at some point, but I didn't know what for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, just food and beverage gets in your system and yeah. it's hard to get rid of it. It's it's working with all the people in the restaurant itself and then all the customers that come in. It's so much fun. It's high energy and I love customer service. I like taking care of people. Doesn't everybody want to own a restaurant? Uh, maybe. I think, I mean, I think very few people have the ability. You ever watch that show Restaurant Impossible? No, I've never seen that There one. are some people on that show that should have never, ever gotten to the restaurant business. And, you know, in my mind, I think, man, I would love to own a restaurant but I think it's probably one of the most volatile and most difficult businesses you can get into. I think so. You see so many opening and closing all the time. So when you think about your childhood, what was the most influential part of your childhood that maybe influenced your adult life? Having amazing parents. Yeah. I was a very lucky child. I had a perfect childhood. Yep. My mother is probably the kindest, most calm, patient, loving human beings ever created. And I'm not saying that because she's my mom. I'm just lucky she is. Yeah. And there was nothing I couldn't talk to them about ever or ask them about. They would always tell me the truth. And I'm glad they're both still with me. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad's 85. My mom's 82. They'll probably kill me for saying that too. But (laughs) Are they still in Charleston? No, they're up here. They moved up here about five years ago. So I've got them up here and that's wonderful. 
So you had a great childhood. You know, it's kind of refreshing to hear someone speak so positively about their parents. You know, usually people, <laughs> you know, have got problems and they're, you know, they want to blame their parents or their childhood or, or whatever. And we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs had very influential either mother, father or mother and father in their lives that have helped them, maybe gave them the confidence and the direction to go in, in the way that they went. So you ended up going to Duke studying psychology in the back of your mind. You're thinking, Hey, once I get a psychology degree, maybe advance my education into business, just wasn't sure what it was. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself in the restaurant business Mm -hmm. having been robbed twice. Mm -hmm. So take us from there. Um, Headed over to Chili's that promised the five day work week, which again, that wasn't the case. And unfortunately the general manager. It's a good recruiting practice. It was. Yeah. Yeah, There was always something going on in those other two days that you had to come in for. And the general manager there, I don't think was really a believer that women should be managers. So he Mm. definitely made my life a little difficult. He'd you know, send everybody home and say, we have to save on labor costs. And suddenly I'd find myself alone in the restaurant, you know, still at four in the morning, cleaning out the fryer and then slipping out the side door in the dark to my car, which wasn't the safest thing. And um, I decided that uh, probably didn't want to do that anymore, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. We were very financially strapped at the time. And I gave my notice not having anything lined up. And a friend of mine who managed the limited over at the mall had a female client who came in a lot, just happened to mention my husband's a lawyer. His whole office staff is turning over. He's looking for people. So she called me. I called him. And I was in the office at Chili's having a conversation. He said, where'd you go to school? I told him. He said, how much are you making now? I told him. And he said, when can you start? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So so I ended up, I had given my two-week notice. I worked nights at the restaurant and I worked days at that law firm and made a double paycheck right before Christmas when I thought we were really going to be strapped, even got a Christmas bonus. And so I was suddenly off in a whole nother direction working for a real estate law firm. So Mm. that was, you know, that was a big turning point. And I owe him a big debt of gratitude for giving me that opportunity like that. I did find out later why his whole staff had turned over. He could be a kind of a challenging person to work for, but that Nonetheless, that was a, a so great it wasn't necessarily point. his decision to turn the staff over. It was the staff's decision that it sounded like a yeah. uh, revolt. Uh, well, it sounds like good timing for both of you. It was perfect. Yeah. Yep. So after working there a little bit, again, a real estate law firm is a law firm, but it's also more of a business than some other law firms might be. Mm-hmm. I realized that that's what I wanted to do. That was the graduate school I wanted to go back um, for And I called my cousin Holly, who happened to be working for a realtor in Charleston. And I said, we should go back to law school. And she said, okay. And she's brilliant. And um, so we both applied and we ended up at USC together. And we both graduated and she had a real estate law firm in Charleston. And I've got the one up here in Greenville. It's interesting that uh, it seems like continuing education was always in your mind, even when working in the restaurant. Did you kind of always know you were going to go back to school? For something. Yeah. I was just, you have to just wait until you find what that something is. Yeah. I didn't want to rush in and just get an MBA and then come out thinking, I still don't know what I want to do. But if you had asked me in high school if I ever thought I'd be a lawyer, I never would have thought that, and nor would my parents. So, so you didn't come out of Duke thinking, hey, I want to be a psychologist. Nope. No. Nope. I really enjoyed the major, but I wasn't going to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so... Then it was, let's, let's figure this out. But I, I'm glad that that was the case for me. I think I'm a little bit easier on my own son in that I know he'll figure it out. It just takes time to figure things out. Some of those kids know they want to be a veterinarian. They want to be an engineer. They want to be a doctor and they know it 
through their bones their whole life. But most of us have to figure things out and have to try a few paths before we find one that really jihaws with us. Yeah. It's interesting, like for me, because I'm a hiring manager and I coach and lead sales teams. So I always tell people I'm in the people business. I just happen to coach people that sell office technology. Yes. I kind of got out of the office technology a long time ago, but I interview so many people who have such a wide variety of degrees from all sorts of institutions across the country. And it's amazing that uh, none of them are trying to do what they actually went to school for. That's pretty common, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it really is. It really is. And some some phenomenal uh, degrees and some really great education. But I guess it prepares you for life and you grow and you develop as an individual. And then you figure out who you are and you're like, okay, now what am I going to do? I'm an adult now. And you have to keep your eyes and ears open for those opportunities Mm -hmm. as you go. I, I look to hire people who have food and beverage background in the law firm because those are people who can... I hate to say the word multitask because that's not a good word nowadays, Mm -hmm. but they're people who can juggle a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats and they take an ownership mentality and they have really strong customer service hearts. And that is very good for taking care of your clients. Yeah. Well, I think if you have a heart for people, you can do anything. Yep. And if you hire folks to represent you, because when you think about it, your name is on the door, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if they don't handle a situation or if they don't handle other people in the way that you want them to be handled, then it's a reflection upon you. They handle people better than I handle people. I I listen to them on the phone on any given day and I'm blown away by the folks that work with us. We are so fortunate. That's great. We're very fortunate. Yeah. Okay. So you're in the restaurant business, your friend, no, I'm sorry, you're working for the attorney at this time and your friend calls you up or you call your friend and say, Hey, let's go to law school. And she was like, Oh, your cousin. Yep. Sorry. I I forgot the cousin part. That's okay. Let's go to law school. And she was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Yep. And, and we did it. And, um, I realized that in my first year of law school that the attorney I was working for didn't necessarily button things up the way I would, way they should be buttoned up in in my mind or how I would want to do things. So I ultimately ended up working for two young, recently graduated female attorneys who were going to do closings. And, um, Joe and I were looking at the Greenville area anyway, and he was building a spec home up there. So I helped them. I was kind of their closing paralegal, and I also was doing law school. And then I ended up sort of marketing and networking for them up in the Greenville area, and we were doing closings for Greenville homes and Greenville loan officers and bankers and realtors. And they didn't really want to pursue the Greenville area in the long run. They were fine with it for a little while, so the agreement was pretty much, well, once you graduate, you can go up there and do that, but we don't want to continue in the Greenville area. So it was helping them, but it was helping me too, because I was making connections up here and that was wonderful. Um, The last year of law school, we were kind of living in the house up here in Fountain Inn and I would drive down on a Monday morning. I had a milk crate with a pair of brown shoes, black shoes, blue shoes, three business suits in the trunk. I would sleep on one friend's couch Monday night, another friend's couch Tuesday night, another friend's couch Wednesday night, and then Thursday I would drive back up to Fountain Inn. I'd go in at maybe five in the morning to the law firm, do some work, then I'd zip out to classes, come back to the law firm, work a little bit more, finish up classes, go back to the law firm in the evening, and then usually hit whoever's couch I was sleeping on maybe around 10 o'clock that night and uh, turn around and do it again. And the crazy thing was, I w- with the hours I was pulling, I was making the best grades I've ever made in my entire life. Wow. Yeah. So, Why would you say that is? 
Ooh, just on adrenaline. I was I was fired up and giving it everything I had, and it really paid off. But you, I couldn't have done that forever. Mm-hmm. But it was quite a year. So where did you go to law school? University of South Carolina. South Carolina. Yep. And how long did it take you from the time you said, hey, I want to go to law school to pass the bar? I think I applied pretty quickly. It was three years for law school. Um, over the summer, we're you know studying for the bar exam, and then you find out if you made it or not later in the fall. And it was November 16th was the day I was sworn in. And November 17th, Noon Law Firm was doing its first closing. Wow. You brought all that energy that got you to that point to uh, your now as a, not only are you an attorney, but you're a business owner. And we're able to start paying off some bills. Yeah. That was a relief. But we were working seven days a week, depending on the day, Some you know, sometimes 14 hour days to start a business mm-hmm. and do all the work. And Joe was doing it with me. So he was a builder turned paralegal for a while. And that was great. And I knew at some point I wanted to have a child. So I really needed a law partner and eventually, you know, met Steve and uh, he came on. And the funniest thing about being pregnant with Connor, being pregnant working was the end of the month at that time was always crazy for closings. And we actually had 14 closings scheduled on August 31st of 2000. And I remember telling my tummy, you got to wait till after the end of the month. You got to wait till after the end of the month. So literally at 4 a.m., August 31st to September 1st, I went to labor and I called before I called the doctor or my parents or anything. I called Steve and I said, you need to get to the office. I'm in labor. And we still had, you know, eight closings that day. Um, So that was funny. Anyway, so Connor was very cooperative, even in utero. He's a great kid. I guess so. So did the eight closings actually happen that day? Yeah. Wow. So Steve had to do those, but we had had 14 the day before. And it's not, that was very abnormal. That was normal for that time, but it hasn't been like that ever again since Mm -hmm. that crazy time. And 2008 was a wild ride. 2008 was a rough year for a lot of people. But before we get into that, let's listen to a message from one of our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Bobby's Barbecue in Fountain Inn. Bobby's was recently featured on national platforms like YouTube, Google, The Tamron Hall Show, Forbes Magazine, and ABC News because of their amazing Texas-style barbecue here in the upstate. They are most known for their mouth-watering brisket, but also have beef ribs, sausage that is made in-house weekly, smoked turkey breast as well as pulled pork, pork ribs, and even jackfruit for their vegan and vegetarian friends. At Bobby's, the sides are homemade recipes and made from scratch, and even the tea is brewed on the stovetop like Grandma used to do. The team at Bobby's really want you to feel like you're at home there, so go check them out. You won't be disappointed. Okay, so let's talk about some of the momentous or the the uh, pivotal points from 2000. You've started your law firm. Now you have a partner. Take us from there. We were renting space over at the Coger Center, and we decided to go look for our own space. We really wanted to find a, a nice little building. The first thing I told the realtor, who is actually one of my friend's fathers, is I want to be anywhere but downtown. And because we were thinking people might be driving in from Pickens or Oconee or Anderson or Fountain Inn, we didn't want to be all the way in downtown Greenville. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we're on the interstate, we get off at Stone Avenue and I'm thinking, why are we going here? I don't want to be downtown. And he pulls up in front of this old house and both Steve and I went, oh, and the rest is history. We've been there since I think 2001. So we have that, that neat old house. It's quirky, but that was great. And 
we were both upstairs in the building and our, had our folks downstairs and we made it really cozy, try to make a very warm, welcoming living room kind of feeling for when people were coming in, hopefully with help with their nerves a little bit, a lot of hospitality. At one point I actually thought I might bake cookies every day and have fresh cookies out for everyone. Well, that didn't happen because we were busy. <laughs> But if I had my way, I would serve a three-course meal for the closing and make it just a whole experience. I just don't think the market would bear that here. Maybe you'd have to go to California for that. For such a stressful experience, cookies and a, a nice meal, that would be a nice touch. Yes, and a good bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, so we've been in the building. Um, everything's rolling along pretty well. And in 2008, in the wintertime, all of a sudden, one day, the phone just stopped ringing. Oh, it's a slow day. Oh, it's a slow week. Oh, it's a slow two weeks. It's a slow month. Holy moly, what's going on? Mm. And that was really scary um, as a small business owner in any kind of business. And we really had to dial things back. It was a really tough time um, financially. Steve and I had at one point in the beginning purchased cross insurance policies on each other, like a business funded by sell. We cashed those in so we could keep the cash flow. We had a line of credit that had a zero balance on it. So we maxed that out. And we just managed to limp along through 2008 as things and as things came back. And it was a relief when business started to come back a little bit. And it was at the same time we had the brilliant idea of opening an office in Spartanburg, which actually turned out to be a great time to do it. And so um, he's been happily ensconced in Spartanburg and I'm happily ensconced in Greenville. And we cover each other's offices when the other person's away. Um, so it's worked out well. So in 2008, obviously no one saw the financial issues that we all had in that year. But when did you decide that you were going to expand to Spartanburg? Was it in that same year before things started going south? I think so. I'm actually foggy on that timing at this point. Sometimes it, we want to forget things, you know, <laughs> traumatic experiences, I guess. Yeah, but it, that part worked out really well. Also, in 2008, right before the economy tanked, I knew a bunch of women in business and I wanted to introduce them to each other. So I thought, I'll have a ladies networking night at my house. And so in October, maybe 20 to 25 women who maybe had not met each other, um, I put it on. I got, you know, a bunch of bottles of wine, a bunch of hors d'oeuvres, got the house ready, had everybody over. I was kind of in and out of the oven the whole night and pouring wine and more serving versus participating. But it was a great night. It was really fun. And then 2008 happened, and I thought, well, I'd really like to do this again, but there's a little bit of a cost to it, and also I realized I wasn't spending any time with the guests as much as I was sort of working the event, and I thought, well, you know, when women come to another woman's house, everybody wants to bring something. I'll do it. I'll just do it potluck style. So kind of put it out there and told the ladies, if you have anyone you want to bring that you think would be a good fit. So it grew a little bit. We had one in the spring, and if you have 20 women come to your house and they all bring food there's enough food. Mm -hmm. If you have 60 women come to your house and they all bring food, there's enough food. We also had Cityscape Winery would come and the owner would pour wine, you know, little samples. So that was there and took some of the burden off me. And it became an event I would do one in the spring, one in the fall, one in the spring, one in the fall. We ultimately had about 20 of them on Thursday nights. And by the end, we had over 100 women at the house. Um, some women who had things to sell would set up a little table with jewelry or purses or skincare or all kinds of things. And I would let the beginning part of the evening be people bringing in the food, networking around the middle. I would get everybody gathered in our living room kitchen, which is just like a big lobby and introduce everybody. And that way, if someone heard, oh, she's a chiropractor, I want to go talk to her later. They could kind of make a beeline for that person later in the night. And it was really, really fun. 
I only stopped it because I didn't want it to get stale and just be, oh, it's another one of those. I kind of wanted to go out on a high note. So we did 20 of them. And right around the time I stopped it, um, a friend of mine was um, hosting an event called Cake and Whiskey in downtown Greenville, which was a very low-key organic women's networking night. And she was about to lose her co-host. So I was able to morph from having a party at my house to co-hosting Cake and Whiskey with Vera Gall, who owns Oil & Vinegar. And we would do that four times a year at a local venue. And it's the kind of networking event where you're not just throwing business cards at each other. People are strangers. Hi, this is what I do. Use my services. It's just very warm and organic. So I've been able to get my quote, quote, networking yayas out there. Yeah, that's pretty successful to take something that doesn't exist to build it all the way up to get 100 people to show up to one spot. That's was, pretty good. I, I think my, my husband... Uh, was a little bit um, tired of it too, in that there were a hundred women at the house on a Thursday night. Yeah. You know, we had to go to work on Friday. But by the same token, there's also a hundred women at the house, yeah. and he's the only man. And they all brought food. It was it wasn't too bad. A it wasn't a bad no. bad gig for him either. That no, wasn't a bad gig. So, what was the point? What at what point did you come up with this idea? And what was your vision for the group just to help women entrepreneurs and business people to? grow their business and their network? Or what was your vision for that group? Absolutely. Just to connect great women with other great women and help them grow their businesses. Mm -hmm. You nailed it. And then the cake and whiskey was, I mean, that was practically made for you too. I mean, you quit one really successful group and then you get this opportunity. Tell me about that. What, how did that grow? And it, we had to put it on hold. Um, I was very lucky to be able to step in as the co-host. Um, and we put it on hold for COVID because group gatherings. But we're hoping that we'll be able to, as soon as that lifts enough, we'll be able to get back and do that again. Another really important part of our business, as far as the networking theme, is when you own a business, you you have to do a lot of things. I mean, if the toilet needs to be plunged, you're the one plunging the toilet. That was the restaurant business, and that's the law firm. That's the way it is. Um, but you also have to make rain. You have to go out there and find business, whether or not you advertise you know, a real estate attorney, you're not going to see us on a billboard. Need a closing? You know, that's for a different type of areas of the law. So word of mouth, um, referrals, that's been critical for us. And a banker client invited me to a BNI networking luncheon. And my first thought was, Ugh, I hate these things. It's just, again, people throwing business cards at each other. I knew nothing about it, but I said, okay, you know, I liked her. I'll, I'll go. Well, the lunch was nothing like what I expected. It was wonderful. And I thought, well, this was really neat. But then I thought, well, it's a once a week meeting. I can't even make a once a month meeting. This is, I can't do this. And I thought about it a little bit more. And I said, well, you know, we're not really advertising. Maybe I'll just make Thursday lunches my time to work on, on the business, on, you know, making connections. And I've been in it for now for 15 years and it's been wonderful. That's a long time to be a part of a group. It must, you must get a lot of value out of it. It's the philosophy of BNI, you've probably heard before if you've ever been to a meeting, is giver's gain. And that's true because I've always, I have a little thing taped to my computer. It actually came from a fortune cookie. If you give, you will always have. Hmm. And the philosophy of BNI is you get to know the people, you make the connections, establish the relationships. And if you're able to provide business referrals to them, they'll also be working hard to provide business referrals to you. And it has been phenomenal for my business, for the bottom line, of course, but even more importantly is the relationships I formed and that I know I have all these people who take wonderful care of me, but I also know they'll take wonderful care of my clients and my friends and the people I send to them. 
And we formed a lot of good friendships out of it. I've had hosted parties at my house. We used to have a pool party every August. Hopefully we will again. We just skipped this past August. So I like them enough to have them all over to the house too. A business partner of mine once said, uh, and there's something I'll never forget is that he would say that your network is your net worth. And the more people that you can network with, you know, the more valuable you'll become. If I was not practicing law and I could just spend my entire day connecting people to Mm -hmm. people that I knew everybody could really help each other, uh, that gives me great joy. I'm one of those freakishly early morning persons, so I get up at four o'clock every morning. Um, A little bit of time for exercise and I'm at the office fairly early, but one of the things I like to do first thing in the morning is think about anybody I've met recently that I need to connect to somebody else and send out emails introducing people and that is a great way to start the day. Wow. Jeffrey Gittimer wrote a book called Customer Satisfaction is Worthless. And it's an interesting book. I like Jeffrey Gittimer because uh, he's from Charlotte, got an opportunity to get to know him. But, you know, the whole premise behind the book is that satisfied customers are just customers that aren't shopping you. What you want is you want loyal customers. Mm -hmm. And when you and it sounds like this, the BNI group and the other groups that you've been a part of, you're really forming loyalty. Mm hmm. And those and those folks and their customers are loyal to them and then they thus become loyal to you. And it's it's amazing to me in in my coaching business about how much just business professionals tend to stray away from really forming real human relationships and networking. And in reality, I mean, people make decisions based upon emotion, then they justify with logic but salespeople want to go out with the logic bat and go beat somebody with it, you know, in order to get them to do business. It sounds like you've really figured out the emotional side of business. For me, it's all about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with my same insurance agent for 22 years and it's not about the company. It's about him and the service and the relationship there. And you're probably not every time you get something in the mail with progressive or state farm or whatever. Hey, we can be $3 cheaper. You're not dropping him just to go to somebody else because there's loyalty there. You see the value. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. That's great. What's next for the business? What's your vision? I, well, at one point, when it was really busy before through 2008, someone had come to us and said, Oh yeah, you need to open offices all across the state. I said, no, I really don't need to do that. That spreads us too thin and we're not, personally involved with people. So we're very happy keeping it small. At one point I was approached by an attorney who I respect and and like very much about coming to work for another firm. But I ultimately really just like working for myself. You know, I can say jokingly, my boss is a witch because, (laughs) you know, you answer to yourself. Um, There have been some tough times. We've, we had times where we were kind of short staffed. And one thing my grandfather always told me, and I've applied this in many areas of my life, is first you do what's necessary, then you do what's useful, and then you do what's ornamental. And if you prioritize things this way, you normally get to what's ornamental, but you get the stuff you have to get done. done. And when we were short-staffed that time, it was, I'm not sure how many weeks it was, but um, I think I was going home that night, and then suddenly it would be 1130, and I'd still be at the office. And so I'd work till about one, I'd literally hang my dress up on a door, wrap up in a blanket, sleep for about four hours, get up, put the same dress on, hope I don't see the same clients the next day <laughs> and and keep at it again. So you do what's necessary. Wow. Um, but we worked through that time period and, the, and I had a lot of uh, help from the folks that were in the office also working crazy hours to take care of our clients. We didn't yeah. want to drop the ball. So do you have an exit strategy? 
Nope, working on that. Um, have a son in college. I have no idea if this would ever be something that would appeal to him. Steve has a, a son and a daughter, too. You just never know if they might be interested. We have a wonderful young attorney who just had her third baby, so kind of hoping she might want to think about that for the future if the timing is right. Really looking for promoting from within or with connections we already have and just starting to feel people out for what they're interested in. Um, love to help people, love to mentor those that are starting out and a little bit younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I call the, the other attorney the new and improved me because we share the same birthday, but she's 19 years younger. So. <laughs> it sounds like you have a real passion for helping others and maybe your exit strategy could be to mentor others. So doesn't sound like you want to have 20 different offices across the state or move to other states or very happy in the small personal niche. Mm -hmm. Like we like that reputation, that aspect of things. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurial minded people out there? Well, first of all, I I guess try to find out, figure out what you really love. What's your passion? What's your forte? I love interacting with people and you can do that in so many different businesses I love helping people surround yourself with other like-minded people, find one person or a small group that you can brainstorm off each other. You can help each other. You can hold each other accountable when you're your own boss. You need somebody to help hold you accountable. I meet once a week with a business owner and we, and we, we kind of go off the Keller Williams book. The one thing, um, what is the one thing that by virtue of doing that one thing, makes everything else easier or even unnecessary. And you can apply that to the next hour of your day, the next week, month, year, five years. You can apply it to your financial areas, your health, your relationships, your business, your job, your spiritual needs, and think, what is the one thing I need to do? The overarching one thing for us at the law firm is really having the right people in place. That would be the overarching one thing. So I guess that would be my two cents. And relationships, network, but quality networking, not just the superficial speed dating networking. Really get to know people. And you never know where your next opportunity is going to present itself. Look at me. I was managing Chili's and I'm calling an attorney on the phone and to see if he'd hire me. And lo and behold, my whole life changed direction just from that one call. Yeah, that was a pretty big turning point, really. Absolutely. Just be the best and do more than what is asked. If you're bagging groceries at Publix as a high school teenager, be the best grocery bagger and look for things to do. You'll stand out. People will notice. And suddenly the manager is going to be promoting you to another position. And suddenly maybe you'll be managing a Publix. You know, you just never know where it's going to go. But always, always do your best and do more than what is asked. Well, that's really sound advice. You know, each day that we have, we have dis- we have decisions to make. We have the ability to make decisions. You've obviously made some really good decisions and, and weathered some really big storms, so to speak. You know, when you think about the 2008 and even choosing your business partner, you know, in who you choose to be partners with is a big deal. And it sounds like you made a very good choice there. And listening to some of your other podcasts, I know um, you've said that oftentimes it's dangerous for friends to go into business together. Yeah. Well, maybe the reason it's worked out so well for Steve and I is that we didn't meet each other as friends and we've been business partners for 20 years. We're yin and yang. We're very different, but we complement each other and we care very much about each other, although we're very different. Mm -hmm. Um, But he, you know, he does things that I am not good at. I don't enjoy. And I'm sure some of the things I do, uh, I'm better at than him and I enjoy more than him. So it's, it's worked out very well. 
Sounds like a great partnership. Yes. Well, Meredith, we really appreciate your time today. This was great. It was so interesting to learn your story. And uh, we look forward to hearing about all of your success in the coming future. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, follow us on social media and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening. Unusually Successful is hosted by Sean Dipple and produced by Dan Johnson. Our show is sponsored by Sharp Business Systems of South Carolina. Voice acting by Becca Kaser and music by Finding Freedom.